Welcome to What She Said. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. As the calendar flips to April, there's a lot to look forward to. Personally, I'm looking forward to sharing stories this month that focus on Mother Earth and ways we can all work together to address pollution, litter, climate change, and more. I'm also looking forward to temperatures that are mostly starting to stay on the right side of zero and a visit or two to a sugar shack for the nectar of the gods, maple syrup. And of course, it's Easter, so a nice long weekend with loved ones is on the way for us all. But first, let's get to today's show because as always, I have amazing guests to share with you. Here's what's coming up. Nearly 398,000 Canadians have bipolar disorder, and with World Bipolar Day just passing us by on March 30th, I felt it was important to help shed a light on it. Yolanda Chang has launched a live talk series on lessons from my bipolar journey to help normalize conversations about mental health challenges and reduce stigma for all. She's here to discuss mental health and World Bipolar Day and to share her insights on how we can all play a part in preventing anyone from feeling like they have to suffer alone. It took Karina Chong 15 years to write and release her book, The Whole Animal, a collection of short stories that looks at gender roles as they relate to relationships, identity, and autonomy in society. Already receiving rave reviews, Karina joins me to share a little bit of the story behind the book. Anne Brody is in with her regular Saturday Night at the Movies, and Gen Xers will rejoice hearing about the return of two icons. First, Kevin Bacon stars in Space Oddity, directed by his wife Kyra Sedgwick, and which Anne calls a bold twist on the standard romance with some comedic, heartwarming elements set against a major life-changing conundrum. And next is the return of Rob Lowe in Unstable, a new series on Netflix co-created, written, and starring his son, John Owen Lowe. We all love finding bargains on great clothes, but fashion, particularly fast fashion, has a high cost we're not thinking about enough. The environmental and social impacts that companies like Sheen, H&M, and Fashion Nova have on our environment are disturbing, but even more disturbing is the human toll. Karishma Porwal is a 25-year-old climate educator and activist who has been talking about everything from fast fashion to earth-friendly meal choices on her social media since 2020 and joins me today to share what we should all be thinking about when we get dressed every day. If you've ever owned a dog or thought about owning one, you'll definitely want to hear more about Rona Maynard's story. Rona and her husband rescued a dog, Casey, and Rona quickly fell in love and noticed that just about everything around her changed with her new four-legged companion. Her new book, Starter Dog, is available for pre-order now, and Rona joins me to share a bit of the story, including the prison time her dog did before he came home with her. Finally, if you're looking for your next great outdoor Canadian adventure, then you absolutely want to stick around until the end to hear more about Andrea Minty's new documentary, Tripping Train 185, available on TVO and YouTube that starts airing April 7th. Train 185 takes outdoor enthusiasts through some of Ontario's best natural landscapes for the adventure of a lifetime. 
It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now. We all know mental health matters, so it's important that we keep conversations like this next one front and center so that everyone understands the importance of seeking help and support when it's needed. Today, we're joined by Yolanda Chung, a business coach, entrepreneur, and mental health advocate who has lived with bipolar disorder for 23 years. Yolanda has launched a live talk series on lessons from my bipolar journey to help normalize conversations about mental health challenges and reduce stigma for all. She's here to discuss mental health and World Bipolar Day and to share her insights on how we can all play a part in preventing anyone from feeling like they have to suffer alone. Welcome back to the show, Yolanda. Thank you so much, Candace, for having me here. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your experience living with bipolar disorder for 23 years and how has it impacted your life? Yeah, for sure. So I was diagnosed in first year university. Uh, it was the first time I moved away from home and I just knew that something was wrong. I wasn't able to get up for class. Um, I was in a really competitive and rigorous engineering program and I just had to, I felt that I had to just tough it out. And coming from an Asian Canadian background, um, my parents really felt that I shouldn't share my mental health conditions with anyone. So my roommates didn't even know. And I think that's why it was so important to me to share now because I really don't want people to suffer alone anymore. And I've been hospitalized twice over the 23 years for having manic episodes. Um, but I'm mostly affected by depressive episodes, including suicidal ideation and attempt. And it's just um, a really scary place to be by myself. And you've dealt with this now, obviously, for 23 years. Do you have tools now that you regularly lean on when you feel a depressive episode coming on? Or do you rely on medication? Yeah, I mean, there are so many tools that I need to keep myself well and going. And Candace, you know, it's not a perfect system, but in my toolkit, I have medication and that is something I need to stabilize my mood. And I also use a lot of other tools such as therapy, meditation, exercise, eating well, other kinds of alternative therapies like acupuncture, Ayurveda. So I'm a bit obsessed with achieving wellness. So I had a long time, you know, 23 years to research different tools that I could use to maintain wellness. What motivated you to launch your live talk series on lessons from my bipolar journey? It's actually a, a sad story, but since December, of last year, I have lost three people in my personal network to suicide. And it's a horrific loss for people in their circle. But it is just so sad to me that in their moment of need, no one was there and no one knew that they needed someone. And I'm not saying that having live talk series is life-saving. But for me personally, it's part of my grieving process. And also, I want to do it in honor of these people that um, I have lost. 
And I want to prevent other people um, from really feeling that alone. And I've heard, you know, from many researchers about suicide that there are usually two reasons why people um, go through with suicidal ideation to completion. And one of them is that they don't feel like they belong. And the second reason is that they feel like they are a burden. And those are the two areas that I definitely want to talk a lot about in my live talk series for people to gain a better sense of belonging and also understand that they are not burdens and people want to be there for them. So how common is bipolar disorder in the general population and what are some common misconceptions that you have encountered? Um, the I can't remember if this is the most current statistics, but it's about 2.3% of the population live with some form of bipolar disorder. And it is a spectrum because there's bipolar 2, which is the less severe form. And fortunately or unfortunately, I have bipolar 1, which is the more severe form of bipolar disorder. And I think some of the most common misconceptions I have, I haven't seen this as um, currently now, but, you know, people think, oh, if you have bipolar disorder, you must be completely um, unregulated and you must be crazy. And I know we're using the word crazy very um, carefully now, but that's one of the reasons I didn't want to share that I have this condition. I didn't want to be stigmatized in the workplace. I didn't want to be, um, you know, set aside because people might think they can't work with me or I can't function. Um, so some of those misconceptions really come from my own head, I know. But some also come from popular media where they really portray people with bipolar disorder in a really negative way. And I get very angry when I see that. <laughs> Can you share uh, with us then some tips for self-care and self-compassion that have worked for you in particular? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there's so many that I've tried and that have worked along my journey. But right now, what has really worked for me, I would say the number one thing is practicing mindfulness. And that for me is in the form of daily meditations Last year, I've also attended a silent meditation retreat, and that was just very life-changing, completely transformed my relationship to myself and my relationship with self-compassion and self-love. So if I were to recommend any one thing to be um, something for people to try, it would definitely be meditation. And there are so many other ones as well. I mean, just the whole concept of self-compassion is so important, especially for women, because we take care of everybody else. I know you do, definitely, Candace. And we take care of everyone else and we put ourselves last. But I think the concept to remember is we really cannot pour from an empty cup and we can't be a patient, loving mother if we can't be patient and loving to ourselves. You're... you're bringing some tears to my eyes here only because I understand that part about you can't pour from an empty cup and I was there so hard myself the last few years and and I think that's an important message the other thing though is that you're a mother how does this affect your parenting and how you talk to your kids 
Yeah, I mean, that's a that's actually a really hard question. I'm going to answer it. Hopefully I won't ugly cry. But um, yeah, that's been a really tough journey, Candice, because I've always imagined myself being a mother of two. Um, I had my first manic episode where I was hospitalized when I was only three months pregnant. And my doctor said, we don't know if this pregnancy will go through and we don't know if you, if it does, we don't think that you should have a second. And there's still, you know, doctors out there that do think that if you live with mental illness, you shouldn't be a mother. Um, and that was really hard because my entire view on life and what my life would be like completely changed. And I accepted eventually that I'm going to be the mother of an only child. Um, and I just wanted to give everything to her. But there are times when I can't be there for her. Sometimes I just feel so depressed. I still have those episodes. I was just in Jamaica a week ago for March break. And I was in bed for four days because I was just feeling so depressed about the passing of my friend who died by suicide. And I couldn't even be there with my daughter at like this beautiful paradise. And my husband had to take over. So learning to let go is a huge part for me um, as a mother and also being okay with getting help. That's, you know, in the form of my husband, which I'm really lucky to have one that's very supportive, my parents, my friends. And that took a long time for me to be okay with as asking for help and letting people in and letting people help me. I think you are so incredibly brave and giving uh, to share your experience and your story with others. Uh, it, it makes a difference, Yolanda. It really does. So I want people to be able to connect with you and find out more. Uh, where is the best place for them to do that? So I have to say I'm not so great with social media, um, but I do have an Instagram account at business.doula because that's sort of my other life being corporate training. Um, and there you can find the link to this live talk series, which is free. Um, and you can join, join there. I think that would probably be the easiest and best place. And my website is yolandajung.com. Um, that's Y-O-L-L-A-N-D-A-Z-H-A-N-G.com. Um, but sadly, the person who actually created the website and managed it is the friend that passed away. So my website is very outdated right now. Um, and I'm actually too sad to even touch it. But most of the information is there um, about me. All right, wonderful. Yolanda, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for creating the space for me to, to share. I really appreciate it, Candice. More of What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up. CareToKnow.ca is a free resource where Canadians receive the latest health information, updates on new and existing treatments, and advice from Canadian doctors via email. After enrolling at CareToKnow.ca, you'll receive accurate and reliable information from trusted Canadian medical experts delivered directly to your inbox. 
Members can also access the website for information on a variety of health-related topics. Through resources like vodcasts, podcasts, and live webinars, Canadian experts discuss how to manage a number of medical conditions and provide the latest knowledge and advice to help you make informed decisions about your family's health with your own healthcare provider. To sign up and start learning more about the health matters that impact you most, enroll in caretoknow.ca today. And now, back to what she said. Here's Candace Sampson. How women navigate gender roles is complicated, and we now have a book filled with short stories that explores this very topic. Karina Chong is the author of The Whole Animal, a collection of short stories that looks at gender roles as they relate to relationships, identity, and autonomy in our society. Karina joins me now to discuss. Welcome to What She Said, Karina. Thank you so much for having me. So what was the inspiration behind the whole animal? Uh, It's difficult, I think, to locate one point of inspiration because this book of stories was written over the last 15 years. And um, it's essentially a collection of pieces that I've written over that time. And all of them, um, I would say, kind of represent issues, uh, images, you know, particular kinds of conflicts that were really interesting to me at that particular moment in my life. And stories, writing stories became a way of kind of exploring, um, you know, my feelings about, my complex feelings about those particular ideas. Um, so yeah, all of them I think are inspired by experiences I was going through in my life at the various times that I was writing. 15 years is a real labor of love. Did you take long, long breaks between each story? Did you know 15 years ago that this was where it was going? I didn't. Um, and I think in a way, the book sort of charts my growth as a writer because I've been studying the craft of writing for you know 15 plus years. And so these stories um, are sort of the evolution of that um, process of studying. So uh, the first, the very first ones were started when I was a student Uh, an undergraduate student at the University of Calgary, um, just learning about the craft of writing. And um, uh, I think the the oldest one in the collection um, was worked and reworked and reworked and reworked over 14 years. Um, So, you know, I I feel like many of these stories uh, in themselves are labors of love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They've evolved over time. And um, yeah, I think that really... I wasn't thinking about a final product in the end. Uh, Writing for me is a process of discovery and sometimes a form of therapy also. Like I'm trying to make sense of things in my head. Um, And so I use writing as an outlet for that. So you use the body as a metaphor in the book, right? Yes. So why did Mm -hmm. you choose to focus um, on this aspect? I think that um, for me, uh, I'm always trying to find um, an interesting way of using image um, in a kind of loaded way. So uh, I kind of gravitate towards the body as a site for metaphor, just naturally. Like, I don't think I'm consciously thinking about it. But um, uh, I think maybe just in terms of growing up, you know, as a, as a woman, um, I think all of us kind of have that fraught relationship with our bodies uh, and how to reconcile uh, our bodies with the bodies that we're seeing in the media 
Um, and so I think that that naturally, I naturally come to that uh, as a kind of um, constant internal conflict that my characters are grappling with. So you've received a lot of really positive reviews on this book. What does that feel like for you? Well, it's sort of surreal. I mean, <laughs> you know, again, you, I don't think about necessarily these stories going out to an audience when I'm writing them. Um, and so there's something really strange, I think, at this point, just as the book's starting to get out there, um, that I'm starting to kind of hear feedback. And it's strange for me to think about people reading and responding and identifying with these characters. Uh, but also, that's ultimately what it's all about, is trying to connect with readers. And um, I'm always trying to, to do what um, the books that I love do for me, which is to give me some kind of moment of insight. Um, and if I can do that for readers, I think that's amazing. I've, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the ultimate goal. So that's what I'm kind of striving for. So you talk about that then, about that connection. So like, what is it you want readers to walk away with after reading The Whole Animal? I think one of the things, things that I'm always interested in doing with writing is creating complexity and creating questions. Uh, and I think that if readers can come away with the sense that maybe some of these conflicts or um, some of these situations that these characters are in are more complicated than they seem on the surface. In other words, if they're coming away with questions that they will then continue to cycle through after they've read, I think then I've done my job. <laughs> So it took you 15 years to, to complete this book and get it out. Are you working on the next one or have you been working on the next one for, you know, uh, 10 years prior? <laughs> yeah, I'm always trying to work on multiple things at once. So I, I have a novel, a uh, second novel um, already drafted. And so um, once this book goes out, the next stage will be to figure out um, where that one's going to land and how to you know continue to revise and edit it. Uh, and I'm always working on stories here and there. I think I have three or maybe four stories at various stages right now um, in the writing process. Wonderful. So I want people to be able to find the whole animal, obviously, and connect with you and keep up with you. So where can they do that? Uh, through my website, karinachong.com, uh, or through my publisher's website, my publisher's Arsenal Pulp. And my book is available for pre-order right now. It'll be released on April 11th. Okay, wonderful. So we're going to put all of this information in the links where, so it goes live on podcast and uh, people can keep up with you at karinachong.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Ann Brody. And this week we're taking a look at Space Oddity, which looks so sweet. What a wonderful and unexpected treat it is. Kara uh, Sedgwick who's married to Kevin Bacon and directs him in this, um, does a great job. She really has a wonderful touch. She has a light touch. She knows profound things when she reads them in the script. It's just a joy. Okay, so it concerns a family that lives in rural Massachusetts. They own a flower farm. Um, the elder son has just died, so they're all sort of in a state. Uh, so the younger brother decides that he's going to go to Mars, and he joins this... Um, group that promises to be there before the tick before the tech guys do uh and he's been he's been accepted into the second half of the program so he's thrilled um family not so much when he leaves it's a one-way trip they'll never see him again but i think this is his way of dealing with it um 
and you know these questions are going to come up in the future so <laughs> so he he meets a girl when he goes to get his life insurance and they they are immediately attracted to one another but they can't do anything about it because he's leaving shortly um and sort of many things happen and it just it bears looking at it so very good so well done uh and it makes you think about the effect that things in the future might have on our emotional lives and our family lives and and our society and culture so it's uh it's well worth it it's so i mean it was such a delight even just watching kevin bacon in the trailer um yeah. i adore it we actually have two 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 guys that kind of adore in this week's uh saturday night movies oh, but let's get into the next oh, one rob Lowe. oh rob, yes, okay yeah. okay we're gonna skip to rob Lowe. i'm so excited <laughs> let's skip to rob Lowe because i love <laughs> i love the, the preview for unstable and here's what i'm going to tell you his son is in it i know you're going to tell us this but he wrote it yeah, yeah and I have watched Rob Lowe interact with his sons on social media, and he is such a genuine, caring father. And his relationships yeah. with his sons is just, it's, it's fantastic. So I can't wait to see this. So let's, let's hear all about it. Well, you know, he's changed. Back in the day when he used to do a lot of interviews, he was difficult. <laughs> so he's changed. But, you know, he's, and he's aging gracefully. So he stars as a um, billionaire tech mogul in uh, Unstable. He, his name, get this, is Ellis Dragon. So he's in a difficult spot because his wife has just died and he was absolutely in love with her. Um, he's not coping. He takes to working naked in the office. He makes all kinds of crazy decisions and he even, the company orders him to go into therapy. So his response to that is he takes the therapist hostage in his basement. <laughs> I mean, it's just nutty. Um, so his assistant decides to call for his son who lives in New York and who doesn't have much respect for his father. So he reluctantly comes over and they they sort of battle it out a little bit. But Rob Lowe's character is so winning. So he loves life so much and he wants nothing but good for people. It's just that he's a bit screwy. Um, he's developed this stuff that absorbs carbon monoxide, so, you know, he'll save the planet, so they say. Uh, and, and it's witty and warm and fun and just fascinating. He he goes kind of crazy in this, and it's fun to watch him because he always pulls back just enough so, you know, he's not a, a hopeless case. But uh, I, it's full of love. It's just love, love, love. And that's on Netflix? Netflix. All right. Um, let's talk about what the hell happened. Yes, what the hell happened to blood, sweat, and tears? Well, this is all new to me anyway, and I'm sure most people. It's a documentary, a political thriller. <laughs> Do you believe it? Aren't we living so in a back, political thriller? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, back in the uh, 70s, they they beat the Beatles in, in the charts and financially. They were huge. And, of course, David Clayton Thomas from Toronto was the singer. So the U.S. State Department asked them to tour Eastern Europe to go behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, they don't really want to do it because it will interrupt their tour. But they're told if they don't do it, David Clayton Thomas will be extra or not extradited. What's the word? Deported back to Canada based on a small incident. So they have to go and they see all this repression and they're always accompanied by around 60 people 
because they want to um, isolate them so they only see certain things, but they see other things. So, meanwhile at home, Abby Hoffman and the yuppies are ripping them and ripping the State Department for doing this during the war in Vietnam. Um, and and they, they come back with all this film for a State Department documentary. The film was never released. And you'll find out why watching this. It is sensational. What a great little doc. Where can we catch Ooh. that in? Uh, select theaters and on TVOD. All right, wonderful. We have about 40 seconds left. Let's talk about beef. It looks funny. Okay, this to me reflects the uncivil zeitgeist of today. So traffic accident, minor, minor traffic accident. Guy almost backs into a woman. She gives him the finger and honks like endlessly at him. So he decides, he's down on his luck, he decides to turn his car around and follow her. And he does so across town. He chases over bullnoses. He, do, he does anything to keep up with her. She's trying to evade. Something stops him, but she goes home. He finds out where she lives, and this depraved, um, ever-mounting uh, campaign of terror and intimidation, she's just as bad as he is. And the two of them carry it on. This is so intense. It's incredible. But I thought it was a little bit like life today. And that is on, that's on Netflix. All right. Excellent. Uh, all right. You'll be back next week with more. Thanks so much, Anne. Sure will. All righty. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming right up. Are you looking for authentic, high-quality, and handcrafted seal fur and leather products created by Canadian Indigenous fashion designers and artists? Look no further than Proudly Indigenous Crafts and Designs, or Pick and D for short. Their e-commerce platform celebrates and showcases the skill and creativity of Indigenous fashion designers and artists. These innovative artists combine traditional sewing techniques with a contemporary approach to create modern and timeless accessories, footwear, clothing, and home decor products. And when you buy from Pick and D, you're not just getting a beautiful and authentic seal product, you're also supporting Indigenous communities. Proudly Indigenous products are natural, eco-friendly, and of the highest quality. So visit ProudlyIndigenousCrafts.com today and experience the beauty of Indigenous craftsmanship. Pick and D, proudly showcasing Indigenous fashion and supporting Indigenous communities. And now, back to what she said. Here's Candace Sampson. The primary objective of fast fashion is to create affordable, fashionable, and easily accessible clothing for the mass market. Major fashion retailers include brands like Zara, H&M, Sheen, and Forever 21. While it's easy to get on board with the affordability of this clothing, we can't deny the high costs in other areas like the environmental and social impacts it has. Karishma Porwal is a 25-year-old climate educator and activist who has been talking about everything from fast fashion to earth-friendly meal choices on her social media pages since 2020. She's working on her Master's in Sustainability Leadership from Arizona State University remotely and joins me now to shed some light on fast fashion. Welcome to What She Said, Karishma. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So can you briefly explain the concept of sustainability and how it relates to the fashion industry? Absolutely. And I think that sustainability relates to every single facet of our lives and fashion is not excluded from that. Um, but I think that it relates to fashion deeply because fashion has evolved from being something that was very functional, 
to something that was a form of art, an expression of art, to what is now, I would say, one of the biggest manifestations of consumerism that we're seeing in kind of the modern world. And I think that fashion especially affects young people and, and is, is an interest of young people more so um, than the older populations. And I think it's also a way um, for retailers and manufacturers to speak to the younger audience. And I think that that's kind of why sustainability is really important in the fashion conversation because fashion is becoming a bigger and bigger conversation amongst younger people. It's taking up more real estate in young people's minds. And so that's why sustainability has to be a part of the picture. Okay, well, let's look at it from an environmental standpoint then. How does fast fashion contribute to environmental degradation? Yeah, I mean, fast fashion as a whole is not just the clothing item that you're holding in your hand, but it's the whole production cycle, right? So, and and there's environmental impacts and consequences at every step along that production cycle. So if you look at the very beginning of the fast fashion um, life cycle per se, and I can't even say cycle because it's not, it's not a cycle at all. But if you look at kind of the timeline of fast fashion, where does it start? A lot of fast fashion clothes are made from polyester and polyester is a fabric that is based on plastic fossil fuels. So how is that extracted? It's a very energy-intensive, water-intensive process to extract uh, fossil fuels from the ground and refine them into polyester. And then you think about, all right, how are these clothes, how is this fabric made into clothes? And that's where you have to trace your clothes back to where they were made and production. And a lot of fast fashion is made in East Asia, South Asia, um, which are the textile hubs of the planet. and Many of these places operate factories better known as sweatshops. Um, and I think that that word really resonates with a lot of people because we relate to and we can understand exactly um, the working conditions in those factories. Like that's something that Nike was exposed for um, about a decade ago. And since then, the fast fashion movement has been driving forward to expose other brands that are also employing this sort of labor. But I'm talking about child labor, instances of child labor, I'm talking about um, no worker rights, no union rights, and severely underpaid, specifically women. Um, Most of the garment worker industry is made up of women. And then you look at, all right, you're wearing the clothes, right? You're wearing the clothes. How's it feeling? Polyester fabric, not great. It's not going to last long. Um, Polyester also comes with the problem of microplastics. Every time it's washed, it releases microplastics, which are tiny, pieces of plastic smaller than the size of the sesame seed which get washed into our waterways every time a washing machine is turned on that has polyester inside it and then you think about all right now these cheaply made polyester clothes have rips and holes in them what now uh you likely throw them away they end up in landfill and just like all other forms of plastic they don't decay they don't biodegrade into the earth and so they just sit there for centuries on end and these are i would say the big themes when it comes to sustainability issues associated with fast fashion. We can dive so much deeper into each of these buckets and unearth more issues, more connected issues that will spring up. But I would say these are the four big buckets when it comes to fast fashion. All right. Well, then you sort of answered my question about sort of the the social impact and the ethical implications of fast fashion, which which impacts a lot of people around the world. So let's move on to what the consumers do what the consumers can do, I should say, um, 
how do we make more ethical and sustainable choices? What should we be looking for when we're shopping? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I think that sustainable fashion means something different to everybody because what it'll depend on is your level of accessibility. Now, you can shop sustainable fashion brands. Now, these are brands that are um, trying to pay their workers a fair and livable wage. These are brands that are using more plant-based fibers like cotton, uh, bamboo, linen, things like that. And these are brands that are made to last. And because they come with all of these benefits, they're going to cost more. The way I like to look at it is it's like investing in a good piece of furniture. Like you're going to buy a slightly more expensive couch so that it lasts you longer that rather than a cheap one that's going to break in a few years and then you have to shell out another um, bunch of money to buy a new couch. So I always say treat fashion like furniture. Um, we treat fashion a little bit more like disposable plastic, like disposable items, wear once, wear twice, throw it out. We really need to change that mindset shift when it comes to fashion. So I would say, and I would encourage people to save up a little more, put a little more money aside, just like you would for furniture or fashion. I know we all have those pair of jeans that we bought 10, 15 years ago, and they're still going strong. Look for clothes like that. That would be my first, um, that would be my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice would be to really take advantage of the second-hand economy. And by that, I mean thrifting. And the fast fashion machine has now produced so many clothes that, you know, we're donating them. We're doing closet cleanouts, which means places like Value Village, Goodwill, and other more curated thrift shops have actually a really great selection of items. Now, what you might be shopping there might still be what was originally fast fashion, but it is a step in the right direction away from buying new fast fashion because these clothes are headed for landfill. And what you're doing is you're saving them from that last step of their life. You're saving them from being in landfill. You're giving them a second life. And more often than not, at a deep discount. So this is a budget-friendly option. And I would say for me, 90, 80 to 90% of my closet is thrifted and I have not looked back. That has been my favorite way to shop for new garments um, that I'm looking for in my closet. New to me, as I like to say. I had to laugh a little bit because when you said your favorite jeans, my favorite jeans I found at a thrift store. Oh, I love that. And they're the best jeans I've ever had. And uh, I, they're, getting, they're getting old and sort of tearing a little bit. It's making me very sad. <laughs> but I also found a, a fabulous Christmas uh, dress that I wore this year at a vintage show. And Beautiful. these things are so fun to go out and just do. It's actually fun to go out and explore and look through all of these vintage and thrift shops. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much character in these vintage shops, thrift shops. Um, it's almost like a, a little outing, like you make a day of it because everything's not just presented to you on a platter. You kind of have to go coffee in hand with a friend, maybe sift through the racks and find what you like. It's almost like a little treasure hunt. And uh, honestly, what you do find will be so unique. I find that with fast fashion, these trends, they come and go. And we've gone from trends to micro trends and everyone ends up looking the same. Um, but fashion really should be about cultivating your own sense of style. And I think thrifting is a great way to find unique pieces that fit with what really speaks to you. So definitely there's a lot of character and a lot of fun out there in the thrifting world. And I just want to speak to the point around how you said your jeans might be ripping. I think that learning to mend our clothes or at least taking them to someone who can is a huge part of sustainable fashion. 
Like for me, I recently learned how to darn my socks. So if they have a hole in them, just to darn them. I didn't even know that was a word until two weeks ago. But I had learned how to fix my favorite winter fuzzy socks and I couldn't be happier. So I think making your clothes last longer um, through creative ways. I've seen people on the internet that have a, you know, a rip or a stain on their sweater and they'll embroider something, you know, beautiful on top of it or a little, attach a little patch. Um, it can add a little more character to clothes and it can be fun. It can be stress relieving. And at the end of the day, keeps your clothes out of landfill. And saves you money. Let's not forget that. That's a big yeah. one. Uh, so Krishma, you're always sharing great information on social media and I want people to be able to keep up with you. So where are the best places for them to follow you? Yeah, so my name is Karishma Climate Girl on both Instagram and TikTok. Um, so that's the best way to find me. I post content regularly, sometimes around fashion, sometimes around other aspects of sustainability. But um, I'm always I'm always talking on there, so you'll find me. <laughs> All right, incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. In this next interview, I'm joined by Rona Maynard, an accomplished writer and former editor-in-chief of Chatelaine magazine. Rona is here to discuss her latest book, Starter Dog. In this heartwarming memoir, Rona shares her journey from doubting she could love a dog to falling hard for her rescue mutt, Casey, and discovering the hidden beauty spots of her downtown neighborhood. Get ready for a conversation about the transformative power of pets and the joys of finding adventure in your own backyard. Welcome to What She Said, Rona. I'm delighted to be here. So what inspired you to write a book about your experience with your rescue dog, Casey? I was blossoming in his company. I was discovering a whole new side of my character. I'd always been a slightly melancholy, withdrawn kind of person. I didn't talk to strangers. And suddenly, there I was, walking the streets of my neighborhood, making friends with everybody Casey adopted as a friend. And dogs just love to meet new people. At least my guy does. In in the beginning of the book, you're you're quite hesitant to to get a dog in the be- at all, and you had a lot of criteria. Oh <laughs> yes, he had to which, be perfect, which made me laugh. So, what changed your mind though when it came to Casey? Well, we had been dithering, and it was all because of me because he had to be this size, and he had to look this way, and he had to be this age. We couldn't have a puppy because we lived in an eighth floor condo and still do. And finally, this mutt turned up who was kind of sort of okay, and he didn't have any traumas or health conditions. And we were first time dog people, we could not handle a complicated dog so it was either this dog or no dog at all and it had been two years of foot dragging and uh, my husband had already decided that Casey was a great dog and uh, I said well best of a bad lot and wouldn't you know as soon as we got him home before we got him home in fact I was in love and I think the sweetest little twist to Casey's story is he was trained in prison. That's right. There, there are actually lots of these programs, and they pair prisoners with one dog. The dog usually comes from a shelter. It's a cast-off dog working with a cast-off human. 
A prison is a cold and scary place. If a prisoner has a dog, he's got a friend. So Casey got to be somebody's friend. That guy training him was developing skills that he could use to get a job on the outside. And Casey, meanwhile, was being prepared for adoption. He had been uh, dropped off at the shelter as a puppy. And by the time he came to us, he wasn't exactly ready for the Westminster Dog Show, but uh, he could sit and stay, and he was house trained. I, I just love that story so much. So how then did Casey change your perspective on life and the world around you? Casey taught me that you don't have to accomplish anything. You do not have to meet any yardsticks. It's okay just to be happy in the moment. Just to ask yourself, what am I enjoying right now? As opposed to, what have I done? What have, have I met my objectives today? I had come from a very big job that was all about meeting objectives, all about accomplishing. And if you didn't accomplish, you wouldn't have a job. So this was a free and easy way of floating on the current of the day. I was just carried along like a leaf on a stream or milkweed fluff in the air, and boy, did it ever feel good. What do you hope readers will walk away with after reading your book? It's never too late to try something new, to be changed by something that you have never done before. When Casey joined us, my husband and I were retired. We'd never had a dog. We thought we never would. But the fastest way to light a spark in, in your life is to try something new. And once you try one new thing, you might try another new thing. After Casey joined us, I uh, took an improv class. I describe it in the book. We have a blast in improv, and uh, we played a game in which I bounced around the room saying, let's pick up dog poop, and everybody mimed picking up dog poop. It sounds silly, and that was exactly the point. I had not been silly since I was five years old. Oh, that is, that is wonderful. I love this. So do you have any upcoming projects or plans that you're excited about now that this book is done? Well, I'm working on a couple of other books when I'm not busy talking about this one. And uh, my husband and I are planning a trip to Vienna in the fall without a dog. So we don't have to worry about dog-friendly hotels. We don't have to worry about leaving Casey in a room. Where can we take him? He really does run our life, and we're happy to let him do it. But... We're also happy to be without him for a little while. Dogs are an absolutely wonderful addition to families. Rona, I can't thank you enough for joining me and sharing your the behind the scenes on this absolutely endearing book. So where can people find out more about you and find the book? Come to my website, ronamaynard.com. You will find full details there on where to order the book, or you can just walk into your favorite bookseller and ask them to get it for you. 
All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. And say hi to Casey for me. More of What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up. And now, back to What She Said. Here's Candace Sampson. Two years ago, Andrea Minty joined me to share details about her TVO original, Tripping the Niagara. Fast forward to today, and Andrea is back with a new documentary sure to spark your wanderlust with Tripping Train 185. So before you make your plans for the great outdoors this summer, pause to listen and find out more about an unforgettable journey through the heart of Ontario's northern wilderness. Welcome back, Andrea. Well, thank you very much for having me back. It's great to be here. I got a preview of the documentary, and I was fascinated, but more intrigued that I never heard of this particular train. It's it's incredible. So so tell me, how did you come across it? Well, we were we really wanted to do a train route right from the beginning. That was our first plan, um, but because of the pandemic, we just couldn't get on trains. Um, so each year we gently try and get on one, and we looked at all different kinds and. Most didn't work out for one reason or another. And someone recommended this one. And we're like, oh my goodness, like this is stunning. Of course, train people have footage of all these things. They're so enthusiastic about it all. And we saw some of this footage and thought, this is, this is a fabulous route. Um, beautiful. So tell me about the route then. So the route travels from Sudbury to White River. It's 480 kilometers. The ride takes about eight hours. Unless you get pushed to the sidelines by the CP freight trains, which go through. So sometimes it takes a lot longer to get there. Um, but you're going through boreal forest, of which we have an abundance in Canada. Um, you're uh, going through Canadian Shield. Uh, you're going through the Chapleau Game Preserve, which is the, uh, the largest game preserve in the world, 8,000 square kilometers. Um, you're going through really remote little towns that are... You know, just got people wave as you go by. Um, it, it, it's just a beautiful trip. So what were some of the challenges you faced then while filming this documentary, particularly in capturing this the stunning aerial footage that I, that I saw? Well, so each year we think we know what we're doing and then realize with a different location comes a whole different bag of logistical difficulties. We had done the Niagara all by drone and we thought, great, we're going to do drone with this again. But one of the problems is the train only runs every three times a week. It runs one direction one day and comes back the next. So if you miss your shot on on the day it's going out, well, you can't get it again for another three days. And also drones can't go that far. Uh, so we realized pretty quickly we were actually going to have to use a helicopter this time, which is very old school. Nobody uses helicopters very much anymore. And and that allowed us to get amazing aerials that, you know, the helicopter can go on forever. It can do all kinds of getting close and low and traveling with the train. So it was really wonderful. I, I mean, that's for the arrows. To get the 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 main point of view shot, um, it's actually a better shot than, or, or it's a better seat than anyone gets, even the engineer who's driving the train, because the engineer is still subject to windows on the sides and frets and things. Um, they allowed us to mount a camera right on the front of the train. So we mounted a plate 
and a custom made arm. And then we dangled this camera within this kind of cool, it looks like a big eyeball hanging off the front, uh, which is traditionally mounted onto helicopters. And so this camera is about two to three feet out in front of the train. So you're, you've got the best seat of anywhere to see this whole view. And, and those kind of logistics were, were difficult. We were also really worried about bugs. Were we going to get big bugs splattering on the, on the lens throughout the whole thing? Turns out due to kind of wind and speed and things like that, it didn't happen. We were very happy about that. What are you hoping viewers will walk away with after watching this documentary? Well, one of the, one of the really neat things, and you'll see a lot in our social media, is it's, it's a slower uh, route than, than most of our other shows. It's a lot about the people. Like the people who, you only need three people to run this train, which is a story in and of itself. These bud trains are unique. They're vintage. It's, it's the last one running in North America with full route. But one car can do everything. So three people are operating it, and they know the three people who are sitting on the train, you know, heading out to their camps. So they're all catching up. How you doing? What what you're getting off here today? What's going on? Uh, so it's a really unique relationship between the people who ride it and run it. And it's just it's it's shocking to realize, you know, you're sitting in Toronto and you have no idea that things look like that up there. You know, they're Ontarians too, but it's a totally different looking landscape and feeling when you get out there. Yeah, absolutely. Ontario is stunning. I think one of the things that, you know, blew my mind about Ontario was that it takes 24 hours to travel across it. Um, it's just a huge province. So people absolutely should get out and explore. Uh, I want people to be obviously able to catch your documentary, but maybe book the trip. So where can they find out information about the documentary and the train 185? The documentary premieres on TV Ontario on April 7th at 7 p.m. It's three hours and it'll repeat again right after. So it'll be the best six hours of television you ever watched. <laughs> um, it also launches on um, YouTube at the same time uh, and it will remain on YouTube afterwards. So you don't have to watch it when it premieres. Um, and if you want to take the route, you know, the best way is to just look on Via's via online and it shows you don't be confused because it only runs three days a week it took me a long time to figure that one out <laughs> it runs up on day one and it comes back the next day and there's when you get there there are only two places to stay there's the white river motel and there's the continental motel the continental motel has a good restaurant attached to it and uh and the owner who's also the mayor will come and pick you up at the train station when you arrive because there are no taxis but those are just kind of fun quaint things it is easy to do. It leaves from Sudbury. And if you look on the VIA online, you'll find all the, the costs and timing. All right. Excellent. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to see what you're doing next. Great. Thanks for having me on. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson wherever you listen to podcasts to catch past episodes and extended interviews. I'll be back next week with more What She Said.
Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.